Hello, thank you for joining LTC DON Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Vice President of Education and Certification Strategy for APACN. I'm here today with Lisa Morris, who is a pharmacist, the Executive Director of Clinical Services for Consana, who is also board certified in geriatric medicine. Lisa joins me to talk about some changes to the American Geriatric Society beers criteria and its impact on skilled nursing facilities. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Listeners may not be familiar with the beers criteria. Can you start by explaining what this is and how it impacts nursing home providers? Sure. So the Beers Criteria has been around since 1991. It was developed by Dr. Mark Beers, and the whole purpose of the criteria was to identify medication for which the potential harm of the medication outweighs the expected benefit in older adults. And we typically define older adults as those over 65. The Beers Criteria evolved over time, And in 2010, the American Geriatric Society took over stewardship of the criteria. So you can see that because a large portion of our residents in long-term care and post-acute are over 65 considered older adults, the Beers criteria or Beers list as it's sometimes called is very relevant. That's great information. On May 4th, 2023, the American Geriatric Society announced an update to their beers criteria for potentially inappropriate medication use in older adults. What do our listeners need to know about these changes? So there were quite a few changes. You know, they typically update the beers criteria every three years. This was an important change. And before I go through each of the relevant changes, I do want to say that reading the beers criteria is sometimes a little bit daunting. And I think it's good to let our listeners know that the criteria is broken down into five different tables. So that makes it a little bit more approachable. The first table is medications that are just considered potentially inappropriate for older adults. And the second table is those that are potentially inappropriate in patients with certain diseases or syndromes. Then there's a list of medications to be used with caution in older adults. There's the fourth one, which is potentially inappropriate drug-drug interactions that may be encountered. And then the fifth table is medications that have a dosage that should be adjusted based upon renal function. And so with that, I will uh, jump into some of the changes that came about this year. The first one, is that warfarin was newly added to the beers criteria as an anticoagulant to avoid or use with caution unless alternatives are contraindicated. That's a really big one. You know, we see that when our post-acute and LTC patients are taken to the emergency room, a very large portion of the time, drug reaction involves an anticoagulant. So this is one we want to pay attention to. So in general, we want to avoid warfarin where we can and use some of our other alternatives, namely direct oral anticoagulants, if possible. Within that recommendation, we have the next step, which is that on the Beers criteria, they specified 
that those direct oral anticoagulants, we have some preferred ones and we have some that we would like to avoid. So they did state that we'd like to avoid rivaroxaban or Xarelto for long-term treatment of non-valvular AFib in favor of safer anticoagulant options. They also went on to say to use caution in selecting dabigatran over other direct oral anticoagulants for long-term treatment of NVAF or VTE due to the increased risk of GI bleeds and major bleeding compared with the other preferred oral DOAC, which is apixaban or Eliquis. So a long way to say we want to try to avoid warfarin. And if we're using a DOAC or direct oral anticoagulant in general, Eliquis or apixaban should be top of our list to pick from. I'll take a pause there and see if you've got any questions. I am surprised and not surprised. I'm surprised because warfarin is often seen as the go-to anticoagulant. I don't really have any questions about these. I can see why these would be added to the list, but what if anything do our listeners need to do now that they are aware of these changes? That's my concern. Yeah, so definitely we want to educate and keep our antenna up for these anticoagulants that may come in and know that if you see warfarin, let's work together as nurses and pharmacists to introduce the potential for a different, more suitable medication. I think that raising awareness is the first step here. So always anticoagulants are at the top of our list, right, to be aware of. Now we know that we have some specific preferred ones. So ask about it. We know that we can't change everybody that's on warfarin over to a DOAC, um, but we do want to ask. We want and because we know that there's higher risk with warfarin. And then I'll jump into the next big change, which probably isn't a big surprise to anybody, because over the last three years, we've had a lot of scientific evidence about the use of aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And we know now that using a daily aspirin in somebody who has not had a cardiac event or does not have cardiovascular disease does not prevent future cardiac events. So the days of admitting everybody on daily aspirin are over. We need to be careful, comb through and see um, what indications they have for that aspirin and if it's truly needed. So that's our next step in anticoagulation. Let's check to make sure that daily aspirin is really needed and that they have the correct indication. If you have a patient coming in who has not had a cardiac event, does not have cardiovascular disease documented, it's important to ask, should we continue the aspirin? These updated guidelines do specify that we should consider deprescribing if an older adult is already taking aspirin for primary prevention and doesn't have a history of cardiac events. That's good to know. Yeah. The next one I will jump to in the new one this year is that the initiation of oral and transdermal or patch type estrogen should be avoided in older women. Topical vaginal estrogen is appropriate for UTI prophylaxis, so that's okay, but they did state that we should consider deprescribing oral and transdermal estrogen in older women. 
and I'll pause there because I think that that's going to be pretty relevant to a lot of folks and we'll need to be cognizant of sharing the risks of that oral estrogen. I think in the past, a lot of times, maybe we've let that slip, but there are definitely risks associated with it. So we do want to stick with just that topical vaginal estrogen where it's needed. I think a lot of patients or residents may have questions about that too. Mm -hmm. So they're going to need to hear why this change in medication is coming about. Definitely. You know, I feel like in post-acute and LTC, we are a point of education. We're just a logical spot to educate our patients about these new findings. And so we are going to have to be on our toes and probably work with your consultant pharmacist to have some educational materials available. Great idea. Yeah. Next one is to avoid sulfonylureas for treating diabetes. This isn't new, probably not a surprise, but it definitely was stated more intentionally this year. So those sulfonylureas that we want to avoid are the glimepiride, gliburide, and chlorpropamide. I know in most areas of the country, we're not seeing that chlorpropamide so much anymore, but I am still hearing about glimepiride and gliburide being used. When you see that, it should be a trigger to ask, hey, can we use some different agents to control diabetes in our patients. The reason that these made the list is because they do have a tendency to cause very low blood sugars in older adults. And, you know, that's the risk that we don't need to take when we have some newer agents available. The statement this year in beers was to avoid all sulfonylureas as first or second line monotherapy or as add-on therapy. So we really shouldn't be seeing these. And if we do, it should be a trigger to work with the family and the physician to see if we can optimize the therapy. Great. Next. I, I was just going to ask, are there other changes? Yeah. Well, so not so much a change, but a, definitely a continued focus on the risk of the use of antipsychotics with dementia. I think this is a reminder to all of us to continue to keep up our interdisciplinary meetings and our GDR meetings. So we're continuously evaluating the use of those antipsychotics when dementia is present because there is a definite risk associated with using those. And those are really the top changes. There were some other little ones, but I feel like those are the ones that are most relevant to our audience here. I know that we had talked before this podcast about what do we do now that we know these things. And as I mentioned before, I think our job here is to work together, you know, work with your consultant pharmacist to address the updated changes, to get some educational materials on hand, and then also work together to provide some education. I know sometimes when we're in the field, I feel like my only way of educating is to write those recommendations. But ideally, it'd be great to be able to pop in on one of your morning huddles or be able to talk with the physicians when they're there or have a little lunch and learn just to update everybody on these new findings and why we're going to be a little bit more intentional about mm -hmm. dealing with some of these categories of medications. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity for learning here between the nurses, the physicians, 
and the residents and family members all mm-hmm. need to be aware. I know historically when I was treating patients, they would be reluctant to change medications, especially those that they've been on for so long. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to work with your consultant pharmacist to come up with that kind of education here. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the other thing I want to mention here. This isn't a new recommendation, but there is just a reinforced attention on anticholinergic burden. I think that's something that we all need to be aware of. And I sent you over a link to one of my favorite anticholinergic burden calculators. That'd be such a great thing to educate folks on because that anticholinergic burden adds up. And there are a lot of medications that are anticholinergic that we just don't even think about. Like, for instance, our second-generation antihistamines. Think about how many people are taking that loratadine and the number of folks that we have for overactive bladder taking medications. You need to take that into account. Consider the anticholinergic burden score and pay attention to it when you see subtle things that Y'all see every day, like, you know, the dry eyes and the dry mouth, and suddenly we're adding on some eye drops for dry eyes, or somebody has become more confused. Sometimes that's not disease progression. Sometimes that's anticholinergic burden. So that's another point of education that I'd love to see us all work together to raise awareness. And we can add that link to our podcast description, too. Yeah, that'd be great. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? I think up and coming, we're going to see this fall an emphasis on the approval of the latest vaccine for RSV, and there are one or two potential vaccines coming up behind this one. What's approved by the FDA now is RxV. It is the very first RSV vaccine approved for use in the United States, and it is approved for the prevention of lower respiratory tract disease caused by RSV in individuals 60 years of age and older. So that's our population. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, is reviewing the data on this vaccine and those that are coming out soon. And I expect that they will update their recommendations regarding RSV vaccine before that fall push for flu vaccine. Ideally, you know, we'll be looking at the RSV and flu vaccine together. So I just wanted to let everybody out there know that's in progress. Pay attention. We may be wanting to add some RSV vaccines to our traditional flu vaccine push. That's great information. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for the great overview of the more significant changes on the beers criteria. So thank you, Lisa. Yes, thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for nurse leaders, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC-DON Chat Podcast.